Welcome to Practical Christian Living. And even as the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle and later appeared in the temple and then was in Jesus, so the glory of God is in you. Do you remember the prayer of Jesus in John 17? Lord, the glory that I had with you from the beginning, let it be in them. And we're told in the book of Colossians that Christ is in us the hope of glory. Some common dictionary definitions of tabernacle include a tent or dwelling place or a house of worship. But our study today in Hebrews chapter 9 reminds us that our body is the tabernacle when we allow God's glory to shine through us. That light goes with us wherever we go, through to a world desperate for the light of truth, desperate for Jesus. We continue through our series in Hebrews titled, Jesus, the Complete Picture. With Chapter 9, here's Robert Furrow. Father, we do want to thank you as we open up our Bibles and we consider the text in front of us. And we pray, first of all, Lord, that you would bless this time. Bless us as we read your word, as we look for application. We say to you that we are not concerned about the thoughts or insights of men. We are not here, Lord, to hear my insights. We are here to hear yours. We want you to touch our hearts, to help us to have an understanding that we would know that we are the light of the world and that your glory rests in us and that we would make a difference in the world around us. If we do not shine, live our lives the way we should, then how will the light of this world ever go out? Lord, we pray that you would bless this study by the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The title of our message today is A Picture is Worth a Thousand Words. We've all heard that before, and I think we probably all agree with it. Uh, when we can get an illustration, when we can get a symbol, when we can get a type, when we can get something that helps us to understand a principle, we gain clarity. It is the way most of us are. Now, there are some of you here that pictures don't clarify things because you don't need it. Then there's the rest of us. There's some here who don't need pictures, but the vast majority of us do. And in ancient Hebrew literature, there were often types and symbols and pictures. God knows that we need them. In fact, about halfway through the ministry of Jesus, Jesus began to speak in parables. And we're told that he didn't speak to the crowds unless he spoke in parables. That did a couple of things. Number one, if you didn't dig into the parable, you wouldn't get what the meaning was. He wanted people to dig in. Number two, if you would dig into the parable, then you got a better understanding than if you were to just give the principle. Well, we're going to learn today that there was an Old Testament building which became a symbol, even a parable. These 15 verses are talking about what is called in the Old Testament the tabernacle. The word tabernacle simply means tent. When Moses went up on the mountain and received the law, God gave him instructions on how to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle was to be the center of worship for Israel. The tabernacle was where the people went to meet with God. But more importantly, the tabernacle was where God came to meet with his people. And when they finished that tabernacle and they dedicated it to God, the Bible says, and the glory of God descended upon the tabernacle. Years later, the tabernacle was replaced by a temple built by Solomon. 
The temple had roughly the same dimensions. It had the same rooms. It had the same furniture. And when that was finished, the Bible tells us, and the glory of the Lord descended upon the temple. As amazing as the tabernacle was, as amazing as the temple was, as amazing as the furniture is inside the temple and the tabernacle, which is what we're going to be talking about today, even more amazing is the fact that God's glory rested in the temple. God's glory rested in the tabernacle. And this tabernacle, this temple is a type, a picture, even a parable. Look at verse nine of chapter nine in the book of Hebrews. It says, it was symbolic. The it there refers to the tabernacle, to the work in the tabernacle. And it was symbolic. That word symbolic can also be translated parable. It is the word for parable. It is a parable that we can see what happens in that tabernacle and have an understanding of what a reality is. Now, the reality of that tabernacle is that there was a tabernacle, first of all, then there was a, a sanctuary after that, a, a temple. And then Jesus and his disciples walked upon the temple mount and the disciples noticed the building. The building that Herod had built, the rebuilding or the expansion of the temple was amazing. He had quarried stones, some of them 40 to 45 feet long. Some of them four feet wide and four feet high, 45, 40 to 45 feet long. Those are big stones. Today, you would be impressed by a building that was built with that large of stones. We are hard pressed to find a crane that could lift that kind of stone in place. And yet they built the temple out of stones that size. When the disciples went up on that, that temple mount and they looked at the temple, they had the gall to tell Jesus, look at the stones in this temple. They pointed it out. Now think about it. The Bible tells us Jesus created everything and there's nothing that is created without Jesus creating them. He's the creator of the universe. And they go, ooh, look at this amazing temple that Herod built. And Jesus goes, not so much when you compare it to Jupiter or Venus or some of the other parts of my creation. And so Jesus said to them, tear this temple down and I will rebuild it again in three days. And then the Bible says this, thus he spoke not of the temple, but of his body that was the temple. Now we're beginning to see the symbolism. Now we're beginning to see the parable. The tabernacle was a type of the body of Jesus. The temple was a type of the body of Jesus because Jesus is the temple. And as the glory of the Lord descended upon the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord descended upon the temple, Jesus had the glory of the Lord in him. But it's even better than that. Not only is that tabernacle and that temple a type of, of uh, the temple of Jesus. But the Bible says in 1 Corinthians that your body, Christians, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So that that tabernacle spoke of you. That temple spoke of you. And even as the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle and later appeared in the temple and then was in Jesus, so the glory of God is in you. Do you remember the prayer of Jesus in John 17? Lord, the glory that I had with you from the beginning, let it be in them. And we're told in the book of Colossians that Christ is in us the hope of glory so that you take God's glory with you everywhere you go, Christian. Now we can't see it. I can't look at you and see the glory of God. It'd be kind of neat if I could, wouldn't it? 
It'd be kind of neat if we could look at a Christian and see that they had a little glow to them, or maybe that their face glows or that their eyes uh, kind of glittered, glistened. I, I look around the room today and uh, uh, you guys look good today. You guys took some extra time, didn't you? Getting ready for church today. But I can't see into the spiritual realm. If I could see you spiritually, there would be a light that would shine. There would be an illumination. There is a glory that has been placed in you. And you take that with you into your job. You take it with you among your family. We gather together here and it all burns brighter like a bunch of candles put together. Here we are in the glory of God, even in our presence. And I'll tell you what, and this may be the best thing that you hear here today. And we're just starting. Everything may be downhill from here, but we are those that carry the glory of God today into a world that desperately needs to see it. And the enemy is always trying to tell you, not you, not you. Other people in that church might have the glory of God, but not you. Listen, you're born again, then you have the glory of God inside of you. So as we look at this furniture, we're going to look at the candelabra. We're going to look at the, uh, the table of showbread. We're going to look at the showbread. We're going to look at the incense burner. We're going to look at the Ark of the Covenant. But all of these things speak, first of all, of something inside of Jesus, and they speak of something inside of us. That's the power of this study. That not just talking about some tent that was built by the, in the wilderness by the Jewish people, by the children of Israel 1,500 years ago. That might cause some to go to sleep, right? But we're talking about something that has significance in us. So there's no excuse for you sleeping, all right? And someone who is sleeping right now goes, oh, what, did he see me? Did he see me? No, I just knew it. I could feel it. All right, so then uh, we pick it up in verse 1. Now, remember, chapter 8 had told us that the Old Covenant was obsolete because the New Covenant came on the scene. The Old Covenant wasn't obsolete until the New Covenant came along. This year, uh, Apple is going to come out with the iPhone 6. When they do, your iPhone 5 will be obsolete. Now, that's according to them. It really won't be obsolete, uh, but according to them, it will be, and you got to get the iPhone 6. Well, in reality, the Old Covenant was obsolete, because of the new covenant. And then he gives the picture of the tabernacle. He says in verse one of chapter nine, then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. Now, what's the sanctuary? That's one of the rooms in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent that was built in the wilderness uh, when they traveled around in it. It was 45 feet long and 15 feet wide. It had two rooms. One of the rooms was 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. The other room was 15 by 15 by 15. It was an exact cube. And in that front room, that was the sanctuary. And so he introduces this whole section by saying, the old covenant had a sanctuary. The new covenant has a sanctuary as well. That sanctuary isn't in this room, by the way. When I was a kid, I went to the United Methodist Church. I grew up in the United Methodist Church. And uh, uh, the sanctuary in the church that I grew up in was a very quiet place, much different than this. We call this room a sanctuary because we gather together and worship and because we hear the word of God. But we don't see it as a sanctuary in the sense that the tabernacle had a sanctuary or in the sense that the United Methodist Church taught the sanctuary. When we walked into that room, there was a sense of, of reverence. And I learned that reverence the hard way. Because I would walk in with my sister and we'd be poking and prodding at each other. My dad would take his finger and crack me in the head. <laughs> and I'm telling you, it was effective. I mean, I'm a poor kid, you know, I'm, I'm six, seven years old. Crack, ooh, right in the head. My dad actually sat us in front of him in church. 
And if we would start poking at each other or making a scene, my dad would crack me in the head with the finger. Now think about that today. Could you imagine if we saw that happen? What if four or five rows in front of you, you saw some dad crack their kid in the head? You know, we would gasp, wouldn't we? We would go, somebody call CPS. Somebody get somebody in here. That guy's abusing his kid. You know what happened when I got cracked in the head? People clapped. No, no. But they did say good, didn't they? I mean, that was a different day. It was a different time. My dad told me when I was growing up, if you go to school and you get spanked by your teacher or the principal, when you come home, I'm spanking you again, taking them back to them, I'm spank you again. <laughs> right? Those of you that grew up in my era, you know that's true. Today, if somebody spanks your kid in school, oh, I'm going after it. Let's go. Now, right? It's the way it is today. In that day, my dad was like, they must have had a reason for spanking. I'm spanking you again. Whether it was right or wrong, that's the day we grew up. So I went into that sanctuary, and we were always really quiet. We'd go over and sit down in our seats. And I got to say, there's something about it I liked. I liked sitting down in that room and, and looking up, and there would be the cross, and there would be the candles that were lit, two of them always. I fell asleep many times staring at those candles. And I would look up at the cross, and there were the Methodist flames. Can you picture them in your head that were drawn? I doodled those flames a lot during that time. There was something emotional about that. God, God's here. And I wanted to be where God was. But I'll tell you what, I would never exchange what I have today in Jesus to what I had back then. Because back then I went to a room, I went to religion in order to try to find God. But today I walk with him. I know him. I get up in the morning with him and I go to bed at night with him. I know him. I know the living God. And I would never want to substitute what I have today for what I had then. And that's what the point the writers of the Hebrews is making. There was an earthly sanctuary, but what you have today is far greater than what you had there. Some of you guys grew up in the Catholic church and maybe even what I'm talking about in the Methodist church was even more prominent there. You walked into there and there was the lighting of candles and there was the incense and there was an emotional tie to it. And maybe like me in the Methodist church, you liked that. But would you ever exchange a relationship with Jesus for works again? Would you ever go back to just going through, through works, not have a relationship with Christ? It is that relationship that makes things stand. And so he says, there was an earthly sanctuary. Then he goes on, for a tabernacle was prepared. First in the first part in which was a lampstand, the table and the showbread. And it is called the sanctuary. So you would walk up to the temple. Again, 45 feet long, 15 feet wide. You'd walk into the first curtain. There was a curtain over the main door. It wasn't a big one. It was a littler one. You'd walk through the first curtain. You would see in the back of the room a big veil that would separate the second room. And then there was a little incense altar right in front of the curtain. As you come into the room, there was a table of showbread on one side with 12 loaves of bread on it. And the most dominant part of it would be the candlestick, wouldn't it? That menorah that would be about six feet high and would have those lights burning on them. And those lights were to always be lit. Whenever they would set up that tabernacle, they would light those lights. And then they would tear the tabernacle down and travel, put it back up again. They would light those lights. Those lights were obviously a symbol of the light of God in this world. They're a symbol of Jesus because Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But they're a symbol of you and me because we're the light of this earth. The Bible says we're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. And we are the light. And that candlestick spoke of the light that we have. Our lives, our bodies are the temple. In us is a sanctuary. And we have a light that shines to those that are lost. 
The table and the showbread that was on it, the bread spoke of the 12 tribes of Israel and of God's fellowship with them. We talk today about breaking bread together. Breaking bread is not about sharing a meal. Breaking bread is about the fellowship that we have when we share a meal. And in their day, it was more pronounced. That's why Jesus said in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man would open that door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. That dining is a form of fellowship. The greatest thing that you desire, the greatest thing that can bless you, uh, what you really want, you might not even know you want it, but what you really want is that close, intimate fellowship with God. That's what will really satisfy you. You may be, be pursuing drugs or alcohol or pleasure or sex or, or, or anything else or power or fame. You may be pursuing all kinds of things thinking they will satisfy you, but I guarantee you when you achieve them, they will not. It is that fellowship with God and that bread represented that fellowship with Israel. You ever prepared a meal for your family? You thought, I want to make them something special. Maybe you're making your special spaghetti for them. And so you go through all, you start at like noon and you put everything together and it takes you all day to cook. And then you call the family together and 10 minutes later, they're done. And you say, no more, I'm ordering pizza next week. I am not going to cook like that, right? Has that not played out in homes here, huh? Has that not happened? Can you imagine how long it took them to prepare their meals? Much longer than it takes us with all our conveniences. And they would gather together and their meals were drawn out. They would break the bread and they would dip it in the different sauces and they would begin to fellowship and talk. And that all took place around the table. The table of showbread speaks even of Israel having a relationship with God. Jesus said, I am the bread of life and we have a fellowship with him. We break bread in communion with him. We have that fellowship. Now, there's the candelabra. There's the table of showbread. There's the bread that's on it. And in the back was the incense burner. Now, it goes on to say then, as it goes into uh, the second part of the sanctuary, it says, verse 3, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had a golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. When you look at the back of the room, the way it's worded here makes you think that the altar of incense was inside the holiest of all, but it wasn't. This back room in the temple or the tabernacle was 15 by 15 by 15. And it was the holiest place on earth, wherever they set it up. They didn't set it up on holy ground. It's because that tabernacle was placed there and it was holy because God's presence would show up. Inside of you, having the temple of the Holy Spirit is the holiest place because God's presence is there. That's what makes you holy. That's what makes you significant. So here is this room and in front of it was an incense burner. They burn incense. That incense would fill the temple. The incense represented the prayers of God's people. The Bible says that you have not because you ask not. The Bible says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Your prayers make a difference. And as we pray, the smell of our prayers, the aroma of our prayers goes up into the very presence of God. God is there and he receives those things. And our prayers make a difference. There are preachers today who teach that our prayers don't make a difference. They talk about the sovereignty of God and God predestines us and everything is all predetermined and uh, nothing can change. Which my question would be, then why pray? They say, so it can change you. Well, wait a minute. You said everything was predetermined. 
They create for themselves a theological issue because there's evil in the world. And if God predetermined everything, God would be responsible for evil. No, our God is sovereign. And our God does predestine us to be conformed into the image of his son. But God gives us a choice. We have a decision that we can make. And with that choice, evil enters into the world. And right now, I'm trying frantically to remember why I'm talking about this at all. Anytime, <laughs> just a little clue, okay? Anytime I start repeating myself the same thing over and over again, in my mind, I'm going, what was I saying? I can't remember what I was saying. Why am I saying this? Just keep saying it. Maybe it'll come back. If you just keep saying the same thing, it'll, that's what's going on in my brain. All right, so let's go back here to, um, all right, so the covenant, uh, where am I at? Verse, you guys can't even agree. <laughs> you guys don't even know. All right, uh, so he's talking about the, um, the altar of incense, right? <laughs> so our prayers make a difference. That's what I was talking about, sovereignty, because God has given us that privilege of praying for people and our prayers make a difference and they do indeed change people's destiny. Now, you would go behind the veil, and there was the most important piece of furniture of all, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you guys know what the Ark of the Covenant looks like. Not because you've been in a lot of Bible studies, but because there it is, Indiana Jones. Is that, is that Indiana Jones? Is that what it is? All right, that's why you know, right? Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is the reason you know what the Ark, and they get, did a good job of rec recreating what it looked like. It even shined when it came out. That's because there's lights down in there that are shining up on it, but it wasn't supposed to be, right? Now, that ark was made of acacia wood. It was covered in gold, and the lid was the mercy seat. The lid was made out of solid gold, and inside was the jar of manna, which spoke of God's provision, was the rotted Aaron that budded, and that would spoke of God's position that he gives you. Remember, there was a challenge to Aaron's authority. And so he put down his rod and some of the people put down their rods and the ones that budded was God's choice. So God chose Aaron. God's the one who chooses, by the way. You might think you get into a position where you get to choose, but God's really the one who does. And so there's the manna, the budding of Aaron's rod, and then the Ten Commandments. The tablets that Moses brought down out of the mountain were placed inside of the Ark of the Covenant. And then over the top of those commandments was the mercy seat. You might think that the Ten Commandments are the center of Israel, but the mercy seat is the center. Without the mercy seat, we would be doomed by the very commandments that are under them. And so the mercy seat was placed on top of it. Now, here's the thing. When the glory of the Lord appeared in the temple, it appeared between the cherubim, the two angels that were at the top, the glory of the Lord would appear there. And that's what made the Ark of the Covenant so special. I mean, it would be the greatest archaeological find, right? The movie had it right. If someone discovers the Ark of the Covenant this week, it'll be amazing. And we'll all watch it on the news and we'll all be amazed that this thing that was, what was it, 3,500 years ago, created by Moses, would be discovered? But what really made it significant was that the glory of God shone above that mercy seat. And because God has given us mercy, the glory of God shines in our lives. Without a mercy seat, we wouldn't have the glory of God. We wouldn't be the light of the world. We wouldn't be able to do that. It's because of those very things. Now, he goes on now to the service in the tabernacle. Verse 5, And above it were the cherubim, these are angels, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot not now speak in detail. Now, at this point, I don't know how you feel about that last verse, of these things we cannot speak in detail. Maybe you think, well, it seems like we've been speaking in detail. 
Maybe you're thinking, oh, I'm glad he didn't speak in detail because Robert would go on and on and on forever. I wish he would have given us detail. I mean, the book of Hebrews is 13 chapters long. It's not a short epistle. He certainly had room. He should have given us detail. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on KGUN 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.